John chapter 6, I'm going to pick it up at verse 32. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. The bread that they were talking about with regards to Moses was, of course, the manna, the manna in the wilderness. I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, the manna in the wilderness, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, uh, literally Lord, but not Yahweh, not Yahweh. Kurios in the Greek, if this were in Aramaic, the phrasing would probably be here Adonai, written literally Adonai, not Yahweh with the vowel points for Adonai. So the translation in my NRSV here is Sir, which is an interpretation, uh, a referent of honor. Uh, does anybody have Lord there? I have Lord. You have Lord in the RSV? Yeah. You should have Lord in the NRS, in the, in the King James. Evermore. Uh, verse, what verse? verse 34. Yes, then said they unto him, Lord. Now that Lord, is it in all caps or in one up, low, up cap? Just and, the capital L. And then the others are O-R-D. Mm -hmm. That's your indicator that, that if you were reading in the Old Testament, it's a certain indicator that what you had was not Yahweh written in the consonants and then the vowels in Hebrew for Adonai underneath. Instead, um, uh, it, what you have is literally Adonai written, the simple word for Lord. So you think that only happens in John? Or now, well, no, that happens throughout the Bible. No, I mean that, that, that uh, Yahweh. I have throughout the Bible, throughout the entire Old Testament. If you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is Yahweh. Oh, I misunderstood. I thought you said it was capital just on the Hers oh, is mine. just capital L, then O-R-D in lowercase, uh -huh. okay. which means it's not Yahweh. It would be Adonai if it were coming out of the Aramaic. This is coming out of the Greek, so it's kurios. They're not affirming not Jesus Yahweh. as God here. They're not calling Jesus right. Yahweh here. That's why the NRSV translates that sir. Yeah, I was confused. It's not an affirmation of Jesus as Lord God. It's even though it says kurios here. It's an honorific. It'd be like somebody saying, sir, yes ma'am, no ma'am, yes sir, no sir. That, that phrasing, well, that was one of the ways in which kurios was used in Greek and Adonai was used in Hebrew. Adonai means Lord in Hebrew. Well, in the Old Testament, whenever you saw Yahweh, you weren't supposed to say Yahweh. You were supposed to you were supposed to pronounce Adonai when you saw it written as Yahweh. That keeps you from using God's name in vain. And, and here, we, in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, you can tell what you've got based on how the word is written. In the King James and in the RSV, you have it rendering Lord, which is literal. But to show that it's not rendering Lord from Yahweh, but just simple Lord, it gives you the O-R-D in the lower case. 
But whenever you see ORD in the uppercase along with an uppercase L, that's an indicator, especially in the Old Testament, that you're dealing with Yahweh. It's like air quotes. Yeah, air quotes. Yeah, air quotes. Very good. Good way of putting it. Well, here, my translation renders it sir. And the reason for that is not to diminish Jesus, but to reflect the reality of how they would have addressed him, why they are using the word kurios here. Not to identify him as God. They haven't accepted that. Simply being respectful to him. Hence, sir. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. They're not stupid. Here's Jesus talking about an eternal bread. Here's Jesus talking about a heavenly bread. Here's Jesus talking about a better bread than the manna. Wow, well, the manna was pretty neat stuff. Mana in Hebrew means what is it? <laughs> and they thought that mana, that what is it stuff, is pretty neat stuff. And they, so here, here, you know, they'd like to have something that's even better. Sir, give us this bread always. And that's where we were. And he's speaking to a crowd now. Well, in the context of the story, remember you have to deal with both the context of the story and then the actual audience of the author. In the context of the story, he's talking to a crowd of Jews. This is being addressed to a crowd of Jews. The context of the story, therefore, sets this as a reference that Jesus is getting ready to enter into a dialogue now to teach these people. Hopefully they'll learn something and, and uh, live their lives accordingly. In the context of the author, you have something else going on. This is being addressed not so much to Jews as it is to the church. To the church, to the people of God already apart. In fact, you know, as we've identified in the past already, most of John is identified as being articulated to people who are already part of the community of faith. To hone and to improve their understanding and direct their understanding and interpret the Jesus event and the facts of the story and the fact of his life and ministry and his teachings, his death and his resurrection, all that stuff is assumed knowledge for the Jehanite community. They, they know this stuff. This isn't foreign material to them. What we have in John is interpretive now. It's interpreting that stuff. It's, it's, it's adding a new dimension of understanding to that stuff. And we're getting ready to hit a very important point right here and now. Verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Let me finish the sentence and then we'll come back. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But I, I'm going to finish the paragraph. But I said to you that you have seen, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Everything that the Father gives me will come to me, and anyone who comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is indeed the will of my Father, that all who see the Son and believe in him may have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day day. That's the paragraph. 
Let's look at the first part of it. I am the bread of life. Now right there you have a problematic statement. And it starts with the verb, I am, ego eimi in Greek. I am, that reference, that articulation. We have heard it before out of Jesus' own lips. This is another ego eimi type statement. I am. In Hebrew, it sounds like God's name to say I am. He literally says here in the Hebrew, Yahweh, the bread of life. I am. It, it, you just don't talk that way in Hebrew. You would say, if you really wanted to say that without putting in God's name, you would say, instead of I am the bread of life, you would say, the bread of life is me, or, or, or my nature is the bread of life, or my existence is the bread of life, or my substance is the bread of life, or uh, my reality is the bread of life. You would say it in a different way than the simple to-be verb in the first person singular. I am the bread of life. To say it like that in Hebrew is to make an articulation about the nature of that bread and the nature, in this case, of you. It's a declaratory statement. Jesus is speaking about himself, yes, but he's also speaking about God and he's speaking about the bread of life. Well, even in English, that means some kind of divinity. <laughs> there is no question, exactly, there is no question. If, some, if, if I were to sit out here and say, I am, Gregory Scott Neal is the bread of life. I am the bread of life. You're gonna call you know, uh, uh, some loony bin and have them come with a backward jacket and put me in a padded room. <laughs> But the statement is rather uh, explicit. I am the bread of life. After having talked about the bread that comes down from heaven and how he's going to give a better one, a better bread, for the bread of God that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, is that for the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, give us this bread always. His response to that is, I am the bread of life. And in case you missed it, he, he extends the remarks. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. And whoever believes in me exercises faith in me will never be thirsty. Well, that's interesting in connection with bread. Thirsty? Hungry, I get with the bread. But thirsty? Hmm. Hmm. So we have a declaratory statement, not just I am the bread of heaven, which is a bread of life, excuse me, which is a divine statement in and of itself, but the I am portion is particularly problematic for Jewish ears to hear articulated. Now, to say that God is my bread would not be foreign to Jewish ears. You hear it in the Proverbs and you hear, hear it in the other, wisdoms, other wisdom literature that God's word, that God's 
uh, grace, that God's gifts are the bread and the wine of existence. There's a proverb that talks about that, that God is, God's word, God's wisdom is our bread and our wine, our sustenance, our nourishment. And when we read and understand and internalize the, the word of God, we are as if we are consuming bread and wine to, to nourish us physically. We are nourishing our spirits just as bread and wine nourishes our bodies. So that image, that idea, that metaphor was already present in Jewish thought in Jesus' day. Uh, it's not an idea that is necessarily foreign to them. The things of God are like bread and wine. In fact, it's, art it's articulated even within the Jewish rituals of having the table of showbread, the table of the bread of presence there before the holy altar in the temple. The bread that is laid out and then is given to the priests to be their nourishment, having been sanctified and, 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 and given a, a special status. It is then given to the priesty. They eat holy bread. So did you, did you check the translation in your... In your Hebrew Bible, did you check the translation? Is it, does it translate thirst? Uh, well, in, this is from the New Testament. It'll be from Greek. And the thirst issue is it's literal. And it's where you get the interesting twist. Nominally speaking, you would expect you'll never be hungry if you're eating the bread of life. I mean, that just seems like an axiomatic fact. But then to add in thirst is interesting. Something else is going on here. Something additional is going on here than is immediately apparent. What is it? We're going to see when we get to verse 51. Okay. All right. Question? Well, no, 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 no. we got a whole paragraph here to work with. Questions? Just sounds like he knows what we need. Who? The Lord. The Lord Jesus? Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and it's not entirely a foreign statement to say that God's gifts, God's graces, God's word, and of course John has already identified Jesus with God's word. It, it, it's not a stretch for Jewish ears to hear God's word equal to bread and wine. So that's not a problem. Well, couldn't the wine be for thirst? It is. It is. We're not quite there. We're not quite there yet. But but it is. So this has to do with a communion. Then he's talking about bread and wine. Yes. Okay. That makes sense. They're wanting to rush, Pete. They wanted to rush. Yes. Yes. There is a powerful Eucharistic theme here. I'll go ahead and lay that out. The, the Gospel of John doesn't have the words of institution in the Last Supper. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you remember, all have the words of institution where Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood. But John doesn't contain that. Instead, it has a foot washing service at the Last Supper. And it talks about the meal, but it doesn't depict the meal, per se, as it does in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, however, does contain in chapter 6 a very powerful echo of it, a very powerful reference to it. And we're not there yet, but it is in John chapter 6, and we will get there today. So just anticipate that. Now let's take a look at the rest of the paragraph. 
Notice he says, whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever exercises faith in me will never be thirsty. So in other words, you're not, you're, you will never, and he's identifying himself with God and with the bread of heaven, whatever that is, and he identifies himself as the bread of heaven. And then it's not yet eat, but instead believes, comes and believes. So he's still speaking here. He's not being literal yet. He's simply saying, I am the bread, I am your sustenance. Come to me, believe in me, and you will never be hungry or thirsty. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. You know, well, I mean, you know, you've known me, but, but you still don't exercise faith in me. Everything that the Father, and then he gives this interesting little segment from 37 down through 40 is used by Calvinists usually and Baptists to argue in favor of the doctrine of once saved, always saved. Or what is also known in Calvinism as the perseverance of the saints, which is a specific doctrine which Baptists call once saved, always saved. And it's the idea that, well, um, whoever God has given to Jesus, Jesus won't lose, essentially. There are other places where that is articulated. This is one of them. And it's, but it's given within the context here of those who, who come to this bread of heaven, those who believe in this bread of heaven. Everything that the Father gives me will, uh, will come to me, and anyone who comes to me I will never drive away. I was generated when I was a child an, an interesting mental image of Jesus driving a car mm -hmm. with people in the back seat. For I have come down from heaven. Notice this reference, I have come down from heaven, verse 38. It, it echoes this bread, for the bread of God which comes, verse 33, for the bread of God which comes down from heaven uh, is, is, is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. There he's identifying himself even more so with the bread of God which comes down from heaven. Um, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Well, he's already said that earlier on, that what the Father does in heaven, he does on earth. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is indeed the will, that, but raise it on the last day. What might this be referenced to? That last day is, you know. The end of when, time. When is the last day? It's the end of time. It's the eschaton. And it's the, 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 the establishment of the, well, and to use the Jehanine language from, from Revelation, it's the, it's the establishment of the New Jerusalem. It's the last day in, in Jewish thought and speaking. Um, uh, the last day is when God comes to judge the good and the evil, and the evil get their comeuppance, uh, get their punishment, and the good get their blessings. And here he is saying, you're not gonna get lost. You're not gonna get thrown away. You're, you're not gonna get driven away. You're not gonna be, be sifted out. You're, you're gonna stay, and you're gonna be okay, and you will be raised. Even if you die, you'll be raised on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that all who see the Son and believe in him may have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day, which is sort of a poetic repeat of what has just been stated. 
So this is this eschatological, in-time, expectational uh, articulation within Jesus' lips here that you don't have to worry, you don't have to be afraid. If you have believed in me, it doesn't matter what's happening to you. Even if you die here and now, you will continue to live and you will be raised on the last day. Remember when John was being written, it was being written in the 90s AD during the Diocletian persecutions. And it is believed that this is a reference here to the church telling them, reminding them, even if you die in the persecution, so long as you believed in Jesus, you won't be lost. So it's putting into Jesus' lips this comforting word. Life is hard, but you won't be lost. You're not going to be lost even if you die. You'll be raised on the last day. But it takes believing in Jesus. It takes coming to Jesus. It takes partaking of that spiritual heavenly bread, the bread of life. And if you've done that, then you don't have to be afraid. Then the Jews began to complain about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph? Well, that's fascinating. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they make reference, they usually make reference to Jesus as the son of the carpenter and Mary and his brothers and sisters who get named. Well, Joseph usually isn't named. But in John, it's Joseph who gets named. No, 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 just about the only place, too. Well, that's fascinating. That's, that's fascinating. Hmm. So there's an echo of the tradition about his dad being named Joseph here. I mean, you know, we know him as the word of God. <laughs> from John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, here we've got reference to, from the Jews' own lips, that, well, how, can he, how can he say that he's the bread that came down out of heaven? Is, this not, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I have come down from heaven? It's a different writer. <laughs> <laughs> you said they had three writers. <laughs> Well, the Jews are curious. I mean, here he is. He's, you know, we know that Greg's mother is Lona, and we've heard that his dad was Mayo, but here he's saying he comes down out of heaven. Now, he's just crazy. He's, you know, call the guys with the jacket and the, and the, and the truck, and we're sending him to the padded room. Uh, this is the kind of attitude they've got. Well, they, they, they still do, don't they? Yeah. But, but so do many Christians, <laughs> Again, with regards to what gonna, he's going to say next. I mean, they're already complaining, though. I mean, he hasn't said it gets much, what he says gets much worse. And they're already mumbling and grumbling and complaining. And they don't like this bit about him saying he's come down out of heaven. We know who he is. His dad's Joseph, and we know his mom, and we know his family, and we know where he's from, and we know that he didn't come down out of heaven, and he was born over here. Is, this, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not complain among yourselves. 
almost sounds as if they were saying it to each other. And Jesus, of course, being omniscient, knows, knows that they're whining and complaining. Jesus answered them, do not complain amongst yourself, among yourselves. No one can come to me unless drawn by the Father who sent me, and I will raise that person on the last day. That almost doesn't follow, does it? That's kind of weird. Now, of course, that's another one that gets used by the Calvinists to talk about how God's only going to draw those people whom God wants. That's predestination and that's Presbyterian? Calvinism. Yeah. Which is the root of Presbyterianism. It's also, there are elements of Arminianism in this as well, which is behind Methodist uh, Wesleyanism, but um, we, we won't talk about that today. No one can come to me unless drawn by the Father who sent me, and I will raise that person on the last day, follows directly upon their grumbling and him saying, don't complain amongst yourselves. Why does he answer their complaint about him saying that he's the bread come down out of heaven with this statement, no one can come to me unless drawn by the Father who sent me. What does that sound like? What's he, why does it say that? Why, what is he doing? I'm not sure. Maybe huh? you have to have the Holy Spirit to help you with this new person that's in your midst that's saying he's from heaven. <laughs> Does it have anything to do with the fact that you said you don't choose God, God chooses you? You're both right in that sense. <laughs> yeah, but I don't like predestination. Well, neither do I, but that's not the point. The point is, what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying here, you're whining and complaining, and you're wondering about what I've just said, and you're saying, don't we know Joseph and, and his mother, and, and we know where he's from, and, and how can he say that you know, he's the bread come down out of heaven? We know where he's from. And Jesus' response to that is, no one can come to me unless drawn by the Father, which of course implies that you're not being drawn by the Father. Yeah, you're not going to get it. <laughs> yeah. That's why you're complaining Precisely. You're, you don't understand this because you haven't been given what you need to comprehend it, i.e. you haven't been drawn by the Father, you haven't been given the Holy Spirit, you haven't been given whatever it is that you're lacking in order to understand. You don't believe in me. You're not going to come to me because God ain't calling you. That's what he's been saying. That's what he said in the preceding paragraph. That's what he's saying here. What he's saying is, I am the bread of heaven, but you don't really want me. I'm the bread of heaven, but God really isn't drawing you to eat of me. I am the bread of heaven. I'm the bread that comes down out of heaven. I am the bread of life. But you're not going to believe it. You're not going to come to me. You're not going to eat of me. To, to, to pull from a, from a subsequent paragraph. You, you wonder who and what I am and how I can say this, principally because you're not being drawn by the Father. You're not being given illumination by the Spirit. You're not understanding. You're not coming. You're not believing because God hasn't made it possible for you to. Yet, maybe. Well, I, I, I would, see, I that, see that, that's what I do. I would say yet, but you have to deal with what he's saying immediately, yeah. which is, in the context of the story, telling these Jews who are hanging around there, you don't get it. And could also be a reference to those who were in the church in that day saying, those who are beating up on you, those who are persecuting you, they don't get it. You don't get it because you don't get it. The only way you're going to get it is... To get it. 
that's the circular trap you get into. That's also the circular trap that predestination gets you into. And it's why, and it's the it's the danger of temporality, which is what I talked about on Sunday in my sermon. We don't understand time. Anyway, let's keep going. Uh, it, it, verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught, they shall all ta be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. By implication, if you, you know, well, let's read it. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes has eternal life. Stop right there. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. If you're not coming to me, you haven't heard and learned from the Father. Are, are there examples, have there been examples of people who uh, up to now have been converted, I mean, by hearing him? Or, or is he just sort of preaching to those? Well, who you've got the know? disciples who are hanging around. The quite a few of them who have professed him as with some pretty high-ranking acclamations like God, Son of God, the Messiah, a prophet. And here they're, he's arguing with people who haven't given him any of those accolades. Well, at the beginning of verse 41 says, then the Jews began to complain. Right, this is the is Jews. Is this regular Jews, is this hierarchy? It's, it's the people who are hanging around listening to Jesus. It's the people who have just followed Jesus. They've just eaten their fill of the loaves and the fish the day before. And now they're coming trying to find Jesus, Same the miracle people. caterer, apparently. The people who were there, and they're trying to get, you know, t talking to Jesus. They want signs and wonders. And Jesus is saying, you, you won't believe okay. even if so you have signs and wonders. Caterer. Remember, this follows immediately after the next day, after the loaves and the fish, and the disciples have gone out to sea, and Jesus sees them out there in the water. They're having trouble. He walks out to them, and immediately they come to shore. Remember that story? And then they, they come into Capernaum, and then this, is, this event is happening there. And it's the people who've been following along the shore trying, you know, trying to get another happy meal. And, and now he's explaining to them, you may have eaten happy meals yesterday, but those happy meals aren't eternal happy meals. They may have been miracle food, but it's not the happy meal you really need. I am the happy meal you need. But you're not going to believe it because you haven't been given to believe it. And only those who are called by God and drawn by God, they're going to get the happy meal because they're going to believe it. And you're whining and complaining because you're not getting it. And you're not getting it because God hasn't drawn you. I almost feel like Jesus wants to go... <laughs> give them a raspberry. Almost. If he hasn't drawn them, there's no way for them to have gone. Precisely. So it's not so their fault. they're really not to blame that they don't get it. <laughs> well, I don't think blame is being assigned here, at least not... Well, Within the story, well, not within the story so much as more of an explanation as to why. Now, outside the story, within the church community, there's a heck of a lot of blame going on. We'll see that when we get around to the crucifixion of Jesus. But how could they not believe from what he did the day before? Well, they believe that he provides happy meals. But is he really anything? Yeah, they wanted to make him king earlier. Now they're just talking about him being rabbi. And, and he provides happy meals, and that's pretty good. And, you know, we, we do, 
Our government provides us happy meals. We're happy to reelect them. We do it all the time. Here, here, here we've got Jesus. They want to make him king because essentially he provides them a happy meal. And now they wanted more, and he says you don't really need happy meals. You need eternal meals. And you're not going to get eternal meals because you don't get it. You don't come to me. You don't believe in me. And God, you don't believe in me, don't come to me because God hasn't given you that which you need. It, it is a circular, and yet it, it has an internal consistency. It almost sounds like a Monty Python skip with these 5,000 people. Oh. oh, Monty Python would do it beautifully. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, the life of Brian. It would have been perfect. Uh, yeah. that, this, that this could have been done in the life of Brian and done beautifully. Done beautifully. Um, very truly, verse 47, very truly I tell you, whoever believes has eternal life. Now that's just a flat out statement. If you're going to exercise, and that believes there is faith, if you're going to faith, if you're going to exercise faith, you're going to have eternal life, period. Well, that's kind of a word of assurance, if you're faithing. I am, he says it again, I am the bread of life. He makes the affirmation again. It's like, okay, we started it up here in verse 35 and I got sidetracked. Now I'm going to start again. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors, in fact, you could chop out the preceding two paragraphs and not miss it. There are some people who have speculated that this, this little rendition here between, between uh, verses of uh, 36 and and 46 is additive from a later period but I don't agree it does reflect the arguments of the day and by that I mean the day that John was written I am the bread of life your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died my God, they, they ate this food that came down out of heaven. They ate this holy happy meal. They ate the happy, just like you ate happy meals yesterday, they ate happy meals that were you know, provided by God from heaven. Wow, they ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Ooh. Well, not as a result, but it didn't give them eternal life. They still died. This, that's interesting. What's the this reference to? This is the bread that comes down from heaven. I'm in verse 50. It's, it's almost as if he's pointing to something. Like as, himself, actually. I, almost certainly. He's calling himself a this. He's already identified himself as the bread of heaven. And now he's calling himself this. This. Is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that the so that one may eat of it and not die. You know the guys in the wilderness, Moses and the followers, they ate the manna, and yet they all died. Every one of them eventually died. Eating heavenly happy meals, or you know, just provided by God, there's no guarantee you're going to survive. You have to eat a special bread that comes down from heaven this me in other words well in the next sentence it says i am the living bread so you yeah. know that verse 51 yeah. is one of the most important verses in the entire chapter 
I am the bread, the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, right there you have what is usually understood nowadays as the echo of the words of institution on the bread. Jesus said in the words of institution, um, this is my body that is for you. Take, eat. Well, here he says, verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. You've got a problem here with the translations, and every translation renders it this way. I want you to read your King James for 51. Okay. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, and which I will give for the life of the world. Okay, they did it the way I thought they did. Very similar? Yeah, I just switched it. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Okay, that's how the NRSV renders it as well. The way the King James renders it, however, is far closer to the original here. It could easily and probably better be translated as follows. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. That for the life of the world actually comes after flesh. So it is usually understood here that this is the echo of the first word of institution. This is my body that is for you. Uh, uh, the bread that I give is my flesh for the life of the world that is for you for the life of the world that idea here is what's orbiting around what's being echoed around here since there is no word of institution for either the bread or the wine in John's gospel in general you look to John chapter 6 for that and you've, you're getting it here he ain't done, but we've we've just we've we've hit that verse. There's a, yeah, there's a whole lot of living in that one verse, isn't there? I mean, that's the first time he said living bread. Yeah, look at that. You got living life, bread, life, living bread, live forever, life of the world, and in the in the words of institution, in in, uh, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he says soma, body. In, in, the, in John, he says sarks, flesh. Now, in, in general, sarks is a very difficult word. Flesh has many negative connotations in it. It, it, it also has positive connotations, but it has negative connotations. Soma never has a negative connotation in Greek. It's always a positive idea. 
Hence, it is believed that they chose Soma to emphasize when Jesus says, this is my body, that this is a positive articulation. Also, Soma has a spiritual context to it, a spiritual side to it. The body is more than just its component parts. It's also a spiritual piece. You've got to remember, and this also fits with Jewish understanding, but it works also with the Greeks. The body, uh, the Jews didn't believe in disembodied spirits. You, you, your spirit had to have a body to live in, like a carrier or a vessel. And so a soma is the body and, and the soul together, and one without the other is dead. That's a Jewish idea too, by the way. The Greek component of this says you can have a soma without a soul. Without a, without a spirit or a pneuma. You can have a soma without a spirit. And that soma without a spirit is, is going to probably be dead, but the, but the pneuma can still be alive. That's the Greek understanding. The Jewish understanding is you, you have to have both together for both to live. All right. And so when Jesus says, this is my soma, this is my body, which is for you, he is speaking of his body, physicality, and his spirit. That's generally how that's understood in the words of institution in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And John, unfortunately, he doesn't do that. He uses the harsher context, sarks, which means literally flesh, which means meat. This is sarks. This is soma. The whole thing is soma. This stuff is sarks. S-A-R-X in English as opposed to Soma, S-O-M-A. Soma is always a positive concept in Greek. Sarx is a 50-50 context. In the New Testament, it's more like 70-30. Usually in the New Testament, Sarx is a negative idea because that's the seat of sin. Your, your flesh is where your sin lives. No, pity me, pity Paul. Paul had a real problem with it. My flesh wants to sin. And sin is living in my flesh. And that's Sarks there. So it's, but here, Sarks, he's being specific. <laughs> meat. This is to the. Eat something. So, and it's meat that is useful. It's useful. In this case, to eat. This case to, to give nourishment. And there are places in the Old Testament, uh, Greek, and in the New Testament where Sarx has, has a positive uh, wording and meaning. Um, uh, and this is one of them, by the way. But it makes absolute sense that the immediate response is a negative one. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. Hmm. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Whew. Now, eating human beings is, well, first of all, we're unclean, <laughs> and you're not supposed to eat people. That's just, you just don't do it. All right? <laughs> That's, that was true for Jews, and it's true for us, I hope. Uh, so this is rather gruesome. This is gruesome. And he just keeps going and going. He doesn't help. 
Jesus doesn't say, oh, you misunderstood. I meant metaphorically. I meant spiritually. I meant this, that. I'm kind of like. No, he doesn't help it here. He gets, makes it worse. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. But I'm bumped. If you hadn't gotten it, if you hadn't gotten the communion connection, now you could get it. Eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. You have no life in you. Can I have some? Can I have some barbecue sauce? <laughs> Chicken fried, grilled, or raw? I'm trying to gross you out for a purpose. This is gross. And we're usually jumping over it. Most Protestants run from this chapter. They don't want it. pretty Catholic. Yes, it does. Most Protestants run like crazy from this chapter. Good old fundamentalist Baptists don't want to read this chapter. They'll say everything else in the Bible is literal until you get here. Then, oh, that's just metaphor. Don't look it like a metaphor to me. Jesus had a chance here to tell him, you misunderstood. No, he says, eat me. Yes, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He's just making it, it's just like, here Jesus, take a shovel and start digging. I mean, you're just going to make this worse. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. Well, they, I'm certainly abiding in them. They've eaten me. <laughs> and I um, just, be, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. See, that even gets away from my flesh and my blood, which could be sort of symbolically these elements. You know, I forget that. It's just me. Exactly. It's just me. <laughs> That's the point. It'd feel funny if they killed him and ate him. <laughs> this is <laughs> let's finish the paragraph this, this is the bread I'm getting hungry this is oh. the bread <laughs> this is the bread that came down from heaven not like that which your ancestors ate and they died but the one who eats this bread will live forever he said these things to them while he was teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum now he had every chance there. Now, I don't. You're going to read ahead and you're going to see that he makes this spiritual. Well, hold off on that for a moment. This whole paragraph, from 52 to 59, he had plenty of opportunities to tell him, nah, you didn't get it. Again. You don't understand this because the Father hasn't called you and you don't believe in me and all this stuff that I said earlier in the chapter, that's the reason why you're not getting this, that I don't really mean eat me. I, I mean, here, eat this bread and drink this wine and it'll be as if you're eating me. You're, you're symbolizing your faith in me. You are placing into action um, uh, an act, as an act of faith and you're, you're taking into yourself a little bit of bread and a little bit of wine and, 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 it's, and it's going to feed you physically just as listening to my word being proclaimed will feed you spiritually. Don't eat me. 
<laughs> Eat my flesh and drink my blood. And if you don't do it, you're not going to live. I mean, we sanitize this. This is multiple slaps in the face to the Jewish audience and is a problem for the Gentile audience because, quite frankly, the Romans and the Greeks didn't like eating people either. It's not something that they did every day. They were used to the concept of eating sacrificial animals, just like the Jews were. And they were used to the concept of taking a, a sacrifice and using it as a stand-in for the deity. And the eating of that sacrifice, and in eating of that sacrifice, you're consuming the spiritual elements of the deity and nourishing yourself with those elements. Many people say that's exactly where this comes from, particularly the worship of Mithra, where the bull would be slaughtered and the blood and the meat would be mixed together and cooked. And then the people would come and eat of the meat and drink of the blood in order to ingest the strength of the deity. And many, many people, scholars, some say that this graphicness of this passage reflects that, that practice in the other religions and it's being adopted into Jesus here in its graphicalness and its, its, its explicitness that to live eternally you must truly internalize everything that it means to live and be a Christian. You must internalize the word of God. Now, just to say that sounds nice and neat. To internalize and live the word of God sounds, you know, to metabolize, to use modern terminology, to eat and be nourished by, metabolize the word of God, it's a neat idea. You're hearing it read, you're receiving it, you're believing it, you're placing it into action in your life. But if you draw the connection from that one statement to its very conclusion that John draws by saying that the word becomes flesh, it's the other place it's used in John, and dwells among us, You, you draw the connection that you, you receive into yourself Jesus. And then the church had a very specific way of doing that. When Jesus said, this is my soma, my body, this is my blood, the, the church, and, and it was so graphically articulated, even though they used bread and wine in the early church, it was so graphically articulated in wording just like this, that as early as Justin Martyr, there were, and before, there were Romans who were writing and complaining uh, to the emperor, Pliny the, Pliny the Younger, for example, writing and complaining to the emperor about these Christians who were engaging in the at least symbolic cannibalism. And many of them were accused of eating babies. Was used as a, he was used as the fodder, to, to, the, the excuses in order to persecute Christians and take their money. But that, it was still the claim that was made based on stuff just like this. Same kind of persecutions occurred against Mithraism, Mithra, by the way. Was that Greek or Roman? 
Mithra. Mithra is, is um, <laughs> actually, Mithraism extends from the Far East, but it became very popular in uh, Asia Minor, in the Greek territories, and then the Romans. Mithraism became a cult of the Roman military for a while, okay. before Christianity rose and took its place. It, it's, it's, uh, it's a bit iffy to say which came first, the chicken or the egg, because the Mithratic practices that look like Holy Communion, but with meat and blood, um, are almost contemporaneous with this, pretty much. So it's hard to say. Did, they, did the Mithratics hear Christians talking about eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood when they partook of Holy Communion? And since Holy Communion was kept as a secret ritual within the community of the faith at that time and was not done in public because the church was underground anyway, did they then take that idea and adopt it literally? Or did the Christians adopted from the Mithratics. They are contemporaneous movements. There seems to be some evidence that Christianity predates it to some degree. Certainly some of the language does. Probably Jesus does too, but it's iffy. But by the 90s AD, you've got the church making articulated statements like this. And that's probably a, a, one of the later layers. Oh, no. Oh, your earlier layer is probably in... In your layers, your earliest is, of course, the story of the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water, which you got in the other Gospels, too. And then you've got this, this dialogue here about works and faith. That's probably kind of early as well because it reflects some of the Pauline versus James arguments of the, of the church from the 50s. Beginning in 35, you've probably got some early to mid-level stuff dealing with this, this conflict, but it's reflecting the later church more than anything else. And then, yeah, once you get into this I am the bread of life, eat me business, you really are dealing with stuff that dates from the 70s, 80s, and beyond. And You're the, dealing the with, word became flesh, that was kind of setting us up. The word became flesh and dwelled among us sets up chapter 6. There are scholars, uh, New Testament scholars, who make their expertise in John, like, like Brown, who say that John's gospel is, in effect, a theological interpretation of Holy Communion, of the, last, of the Lord's Supper, of the Eucharist. Um, that's certainly true for chapter 6. And the whole gospel can be seen that way. And somebody says, well, why would you put the, this stuff about the Lord's Supper so early? Well, John's been doing it all along. It's been front-loading everything. All the affirmations of who Jesus is don't develop over time like they do in the synoptics. They're placed up front in early chapters. And here we got it again. I am the bread of life, an, er, an affirmation where Jesus you know, essentially doesn't, doesn't start talking about this is my body, this is my blood until the very end. Here, he does it in chapter 6. Way before the midpoint of the gospel. The gospel of John is constantly front-loading these affirmations. Usually those affirmations are placed in the lips of other people. The narrator, the word of God, articulations. Uh, John the Baptist, there goes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
the disciples, various disciples, making various affirmations about him. Even Nicodemus making a few affirmations about him. But Jesus making his own affirmations about himself. And these here are amongst the biggest. I am your source of nourishment. I am your source of spiritual, eternal strength, even physical strength. You must receive me as a... I'm going to clean him up a little bit. You must receive me as assuredly as you eat bread and wine. And if you eat and drink me, you won't be hungry or thirsty again. Certainly not spiritually. You can eat all sorts of food and you're going to be hungry and you're eventually going to die. But if you eat and drink me, you won't. Couldn't he made that a little plainer to people? <laughs> no. <clears throat> yeah, he probably could have. But I'm going to tell you, um, sometimes you have to slap people. My granddad used to talk about, I guess this is, a, I've heard this from several different sources, but my granddad used to say it too, that to get the cow to come over to you, you hear cow, hear bossy, come over here, girl. Come on over here, girl. And you got behind yourself a stick. <laughs> and you get the cow over close and then wham! <laughs> And you kind of have that in Jesus. Here, bossy in them, yeah. Here, here, bossy, here, come here, cow. Come here, girl. Come on over here, girl. Here, here's a happy meal. Here, come over here, come over here, come over here. Now eat me. <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. If you, it's one thing to eat, eat the happy meal. Eat, eat the sign. See the sign and the wonder. It's another thing to truly take that sign and wonder and all that Jesus is and says and make it part of your very living. And that's what you do when you eat something. You're, you're nourishing yourself physically. But, you know, I mean, it's a statement that, that both the Jews and the Greeks would just love. You are what you eat. And we know that's a true statement, by the way. Well, it's, it here. It sounds like he's taken things that these other religions have done and sort of made them legitimate. Or, he's, or those other religions possibly are recognizing a truth that is... Uh, built into the reality that God made. Well, he was first. That, that uh, they, they're practicing, a, in essence, something that in, is true, that then Jesus gives us the true understanding of, which is another way of looking at it. So they misunderstood what he was saying and started their... Not so much what he was saying, but what God is saying in the universe. That's how some people understand this. That that people, the ancient peoples looked and saw and understood and had an experience of God, but they misunderstood certain elements of it and they practiced it as best they could. Whereas Jesus comes with the full revelation, which then gives us true understanding. And that's why there are similarities there. Well, I I think that's true on some things. I'm not sure about this. Like I'm not sure which comes first in this case, Mithraism or Christian practice. Elements of Christian practice certainly predate Mithraism. Some elements of Mithraism predate Christianity. It just kind of depends on what you're talking about. And the practice of taking an animal and slaughtering it in the name of the deity goes back 5,000 years before Jesus. So that's nothing new. In fact, it, taking the Paschal Lamb and slaughtering it is the type for Christ's death on the cross in Judaism. So, I mean, 
in Christianity's interpretation of the Paschal mystery. Jesus is our Passover lamb. That's the Christian interpretation of it. And so as, as, a, as a point of fact, it, it is there even in the less graphical portions. It's, it's there. You can, you can almost argue if you get this, you must have been drawn because that's about the only way you're going to not going to reason this through. It's just something that you're going to understand. There you go. If, if you are already within the family, if you are already partaking of communion, you get the mystery then. These words don't gross you out. Not when you start thinking about them. You understand what they mean in their true depth. And that's what Jesus is getting ready to say. Let's, let's read that part. When many, uh, the disciples had trouble with this too, by the way. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? <laughs> well, no, duh. <laughs> it's not easy. But Jesus, being aware that his disciples were complaining about it, said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? I mean, this is tough stuff, but... It, there's more tough stuff to come. It is the Spirit, and this is where most Protestants run very quickly. It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is useless. Now, just juxtapose that with what Jesus says in verse 55. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in Doesn't sound like Jesus agrees with himself. Unless there's something else going on here. Let's read the verse again. It is the spirit that gives life. I thought he was the bread of life. Uh... This is the bread that came down from heaven. Uh, wrong verse. Verse 51 again. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I give, that I will give, is my flesh for the life of the world. It is the spirit that gives life. The flesh is useless. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But among you there are some who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the first who were the ones who did not believe and who was the one who would betray him. Dun, 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 dun. Judas already being mentioned in that context. And he said, for this reason I have told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. It is the spirit that gives life. The flesh is useless. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. What words? The words he's been speaking before. He sounds like he's contradicting himself, doesn't he? Well, he's confused. He's trying to explain it better, maybe. Yeah. Well, 
I think, think he had second thoughts. I think him. after he told people to eat him and drink him, he needed to straighten yeah. it up. Even his own disciples said, boy, that's hard to believe. Jesus is straightening it up. I mean, it's, it's the ceremony that he's talking about. After he told him to eat him when and drink him, he needed to straighten something up. Yes, he's about exactly right. In the preceding verses, when he's talking about eating and drinking him, he's talking in literal terms about the Eucharistic ceremony. But here, he's talking about something different. He's talking about the meaning that goes beyond that act. The flesh, the spirit, it is the spirit that gives life. It is the spirit that is behind the act. It is the flesh, the, the surface level of the flesh of what you're doing is meaningless. It is the spirit that is empowering the act that gives life. Just eating and drinking is meaningless. If Here, let, let's just change this around. The flesh we're speaking about here is not Jesus' flesh. It's ours. When we go to the table of the Lord, I'll just pull it into modern context. When we go to the table of the Lord and kneel and eat and drink, the physical act is meaningless. There's, about, there's not enough nourishment in that bit of bread, in that bit of grape juice to, to feed us. If that's all we had, we'd starve to death, all right, physically. So it's not the physical act, not the flesh act, the act of physically going up and partaking that has meaning to it so much as the spirit that's behind it. The actual motivating motivation of God, the motivation of the Holy Spirit within us, calling us forward to eat and drink, to exercise our faith and come forward and do what Jesus has called us to do. That is where the meaning is. That is where life is. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Talking about partaking of who Jesus is and Jesus' very presence and Jesus' very nature is spirit and life. Is, is the root of our spirit and life, in other words, another way of putting it. I don't think he's talking so much here about specifically, oh, I'm repeating everything I said in the preceding three paragraphs. I don't think he's doing that. I think he's saying what we're doing in the physical body is pretty much not going to mean anything unless the spirit is behind it. Unless the spirit is behind it, it's going to be meaningless. Paul took it one step further and said, if you do not have your focus on the presence of Jesus when you're partaking of the elements of Holy Communion, you're going to hurt yourself. If you don't recognize the presence of Jesus in your neighbors, and you don't recognize the presence of Jesus in your midst, when you eat and drink and partake, if you do so uh, in a manner that is not worthy of the presence of God, you're going to hurt yourself. You're going to eat and drink damnation to yourself, to quoting literally out of 1 Corinthians. That's a step further than this. As he was dealing with a situation where they were abusing the sacrament and disrespecting their brothers and sisters in the family of faith. That was back in the 50s. But back in the 50s, in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about eating and drinking the body and blood of Jesus. Talks about 
partaking of the real presence of Christ in the elements. Being aware is not, what I say in Holy Communion every single Sunday that we have Holy Communion, this is the bread which we break, it is a means of partaking of the body of Christ. It's a translational difference, but it's the same phrasing. The bread which we break, is it not a means of partaking of the body of Christ, the cup over which we give thanks? Is it not a means of partaking of the blood of Christ? It comes straight out of 1 Corinthians. Those are rhetorical questions. The statement is yes, they are. So this is not, I mean, the fact that this comes from the 90s, it's graphic, but it reflects the practice of the church even in the 50s. And it was a practice of the church that existed not just in Corinth or in Asia Minor and the Pauline churches, but existed in the Johannine churches too and was found in the church in the Acts of the Apostles, therefore in Jerusalem and in Caesarea and, and throughout, throughout the, the... One of the unifying things of the early church was its practice of Holy Communion. Now it varied to some degree, but the basics remained the same across the board. Some communities had two cups for a while, but for the most part, they all had bread of some kind and wine. And some of them had a great big meal before or a great big meal afterwards. Some had none of that. Some brought the elements and gathered them together and then partook of them as a group. Others, the elements were already placed before them. Well, when you use the word metabolize, yeah. that sure gave me something to think about. Because when we take in the spirit mm -hmm. of Jesus and his teaching mm -hmm. and his ways, mm -hmm. it does, it becomes a part of us. Right. And then he lives in us. That's precisely the idea. And that's the idea behind the graphical language here too. If you're gonna, if you truly want to live as Christ lived, you, you need to take him into you. Literally eat and drink it. And, uh, and then you can take the language then and extend it into a metaphor for understanding, which is what most people do. It's probably, I mean, even the Roman Catholics do that. The literal? How can you? You've know, you got to understand. The, Roman, the, the only difference between us and the Roman Catholic Church on Holy Communion is the question of transubstantiation. Yeah, they believe it really is the blood? Well, not quite. You see, we believe in the real presence, that Jesus is really present. So does the Roman Catholic Church. But they say he is really present because when the priest prays the prayer of, of, of consecration, the bread, while it still looks, smells, and tastes like bread, its spiritual ontological substance becomes transformed into the flesh of Jesus, the body of Jesus. And the wine, although it still looks, smells, and tastes like wine, its substance becomes the blood of Jesus. So the accidents on the outside remain the same. The substance on the inside changes, which is a very ancient, well, not so ancient, philosophical understanding of the nature of things. Now, we don't, we don't say that. We say, we believe Jesus is really present. When you come and you eat and you drink, you receive him into you by faith. But Jesus is really present here. Um, 
the Roman Catholic Church uses their definition of transubstantiation to explain how he is really present. Mechanics. Mechanically, yeah, the mechanics of it. And so why do we have so much trouble with communion because we really are not that far apart with what we're saying? Theologically, when you get past the mechanic thereof of how Jesus is present, we're the same. They recognize that, so we. But we're that way because we come from the Anglican Church, Methodists do. And then the Anglican Church, they didn't, they didn't devolve far from the Roman Catholic position either. The idea of real presence, therefore, becomes the point at which many churches are coming back together in terms of their understanding of communion. No trouble talking about real presence. It's the question of how is Jesus really present? Well, we say we don't care. We know he is, and that's all that matters. He, he is in the person seated next to you in the pew. Us, yeah. He's in the person seated in the pew next to you. He's, he's in, the, in the word you heard proclaimed, the hymns you sang, and the, and the meal you're getting ready to eat. And, and, and that's what's most important. And, uh, and in the end, the Roman Catholic Church says yes. And that was the one thing that, you know, one of my additives, the thing I got myself most in trouble for, was I say that in the United Methodist Church and other Protestant denominations, we don't say the bread and wine are transubstantiated. We say we are. We still look and smell and probably even taste just like us. But we become the body of Christ. Yeah, you remember you that. You wrote about it on your uh -huh. blog. I've written that. I've preached a sermon on it yeah. here. And say I got myself in trouble with, was, is a little bit of a stretch. But the Committee on Holy Communion it, it, back in 2004, they all looked at me and said, Ooh, <laughs> you just made a step across the line that you're allowed to go. And I said, I didn't say anything about the bread and the wine. I said us. And we talk about the church as the body of Christ. And that flows kind of out of here. Because what happens when you eat me, Jesus says? You live forever. I am in you and you are in me. And that's the whole essence there of that idea of abiding in him and him abiding in us. We become the body of Christ. listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2010 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.